Good morning, everyone. Matthew. Oh, my mom was here for a minute. Somebody in the front row is calling me Matthew. Um, I'm going to share a real quick story with you. This is not part of my sermon, and uh, there's no charge. This is a freebie today. But, you know, in the Old Testament, the, the Jews would set up um, these little monuments, right, to remember the things that God had done for them. Um, you know, little pillars of rock so that generations down the line, people would remember the amazing things God did. And, and that song, um, My Lighthouse, that we sang towards the beginning there, um, that is one of those monuments for, for my wife and I. As you guys know, we were um, missionaries in Papua New Guinea for a number of years, and um, we lived on an island. And so it was 100 miles back to the main town where we would get groceries, and we decided to start doing it by boat instead of trying to get through these old roads. But one time on our way back out to the island, we, um, our boat broke down in the middle of the ocean. And in Papua New Guinea, it's a very undeveloped country. There's no Coast Guard. There's nobody to call um, other than our mission organization to tell them that we were broke down and we were drifting out in the middle of the ocean. And, um, and so we, we, it was a fairly good-sized boat. There's no way we could paddle it to shore. We were a few miles out, and um, the wind was blowing one direction. The ocean was, current was moving another, and we had no idea where we were going to go, none at all. So everybody in the boat was throwing up. They were sick because there's these huge waves. And so I just sat in the back of the boat and started praying. I didn't know what else to do, right? I had no control of the situation. <clears throat> and so I turned on our GPS and started sending coordinates to um, those um, people who were in charge uh, of our mission, because I had still had a phone signal where we were at. And um, so we started drifting and drifting. We drifted two hours. And um, uh, just a few miles before where we had broke down, we had passed an island. Um, and so we started drifting towards this island. It was really cool because there's this giant reef in front of it and these huge waves crashing on this island, and we're drifting right towards it. And uh, as we get close to it, the, the, we start moving in between the island and the mainland. And we, we drift right into this shallow area where there's not a single wave. Like, that's totally draw, totally flat. And all these people come out in canoes, these people in the tribe that live there, and they're, they're asking us what's going on. And, and, and we paddled a little bit farther and got up to shore. And, and the most amazing thing was it was an old Catholic mission station. And there was a boat dock, like, sticking out in the water. And we just paddled up to the boat dock, and our passengers got out onto the dock, and the truck drove down and picked them up right on the dock. Of all the places in the world we could have gone, we drifted perfectly into a boat dock. He carried us safe to shore. And, and it's a great reminder that not only does God spiritually fix us when, we, when we're shipwrecked, but physically oftentimes he will meet our needs and, and carry us safe to shore. And so whenever you hear that song, remember that God does physically carry us safe to shore at times. Um, I think I got some slides today. Um, both Jim and Don's jaws hit the floor when I told them I had slides today. So go ahead and throw that first slide up, Jim. <clears throat> How many of you guys still have one of these in your home? <laughs> How many of you use it still? Yeah, and when you get to zero, you push hard really back, back so it goes fast, right? Because you don't want to wait for it to go tick, 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 all the way back around, right? Next slide. How about one of these? Manual typewriter, right? That's, that's back when, when women were, were strong and men were strong. We had to have strong fingers that actually push those buttons all the way down, right? Not like these little wimpy computers now, right? <laughs> all right, next slide. How about one of these? How many of you use these regularly? <laughs> Pay phones. Those have been obsolete for a while, huh? They've been taking them out, and that's why we don't see Superman anymore. We don't have phone booths. <laughs> next slide. How about this one? I remember the day we got my wife one of these when they first came out. They were waterproof. Put your cassette in there. You could exercise. You could be out in the weather. It was amazing. 
You guys remember the pencil, right? Yeah. Quickly get it rewound. You stick the pencil eraser in, spin it really fast, yeah? <laughs> yeah you guys are laughing. I got one more thing I want to show you here. Who knows what this is? Yeah, yeah. Remember that? You would stick one of these in there, right? Rewind it so you didn't get charged the rewind fees, right? Uh, go to John's house. I'm sure he's got a few of them laying around. He's got two of them. <laughs> and they still use them. I'm going to go back to the VHS thing in a little while. I've got an illustration that I'm going to use that I think you guys will enjoy. But today, um, these, all these items were, they're kind of obsolete items, right? There's a nostalgia to them, right? We, we know that record players and things, um, people are buying because there's a nostalgia to them. But they're really an obsolete technology, right? Things have changed. <clears throat> Excuse me. We've moved on. We, uh, we embrace the new technology, right? You just push a button on your TV and you've got movies streaming directly to you. Now you don't have to go run down to Blockbuster on Friday night and try and get there early enough to get the newest releases. Yeah, I'm going to get there in a little bit. Yeah, that's a cool story. And I think it's a good illustration of what we're talking about today. But these are irrelevant items, right? We don't use them anymore. And, and so we're, we're in this series called Curveball. Is this really loud? Okay. As long as nobody's complaining. I feel like I'm screaming into my own ears here. But we've been, we started this series Curveball, right? And we're, we're looking at how we respond when life throws us a curveball, right? When, when life is just moving along nice and even, the way we like, we're all comfortable, right? And then suddenly something or everything takes a nosedive. Last week, Kurt talked about compromise, right? The idea of we, we start pushing our boundaries, push the guardrails farther and farther, giving ourselves a little more wobble room until eventually what happens? We end up in the ditch. <clears throat> and he talked about Daniel. And uh, you guys remember what Daniel did, right? As soon as he saw this curveball coming, he hit his knees, right? His first response to change was prayer. And that should be ours. We should be prostrating ourselves before our loving Father every time we see change coming, every time a curveball is headed our way. And so as we're looking at this idea of curveball and, and uh, uh, you know, how do we respond to these kind of things, today we're going to be looking at change, in case you were wondering. <clears throat> and uh, we're going to be looking at a man named Saul. Not the Saul of the New Testament who later became Paul, but King Saul from the Old Testament. He uh, was the first king of Israel, right? You guys remember this story? It's in 1 Samuel. You guys can start turning there if you'd like. We're going to spend a little bit of time in 1 Samuel looking at the life of Saul. And so what happened was there was a point where the nation of Israel decided they didn't want God as their king. They wanted a real king, a manly king like the rest of the nations around them had, right? And, uh, and so at this point in time, God has spoke to Samuel and he's, and he's handpicked uh, the first king of Israel, and that would be Samuel. So if you want, you guys can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. And I do have my Bible verses written on here. So in case you guys are going, where's your Bible? It's over there. I forgot it. But I do have it written down. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else. I'm going to skip around some verses. I'm just trying to build a picture of who Saul is for us real quick. So we jump down to 1 Samuel 9, verses 20 through 21. <clears throat> now, at this point, Saul had been out looking for donkeys that were lost. They were his father's donkeys. And he had been out searching for them, and he happens to run into Samuel. 
And Samuel says to him, don't worry about those donkeys that were lost three days ago, for they have been found. And I am here to tell you that your family are the focus of all Israel's hopes. Saul replied, but I'm the only, I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel. And my family is the least important of all the families of that tribe. Why are you talking like this to me? Even Saul shocked that he has uh, been chosen, not that he knows at this point he's been chosen, but there's something going on in Saul's very shocked. So we jump down to, to chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. And Samuel tells Saul, go down to Gilgal ahead of me. I will join you there to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. You must wait seven days until I arrive and give you further instructions. As Saul turned and started to leave, God gave him a new heart. And all Samuel's signs were fulfilled that day. When Saul and his servants arrived at Gibeah, they saw a group of prophets coming toward them. Yet the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he began to prophesy. Jumping down to verses 20 through 24. So Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel before the Lord. They're getting ready now. Samuel is pulling the tribes together. They're going to announce for the nation of Israel who this king is that they are wanting so desperately. Brings all the tribes of Israel before the Lord, and the tribe of Benjamin was chosen by Lot. Then he brought each family of the tribe of Benjamin before the Lord, and the family of the Metrites were chosen. And finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen from among them. But when they looked for him, he had disappeared. So they asked the Lord, where is he? And the Lord said, he's hiding among the baggage. So they found him and brought him out, and he stood head and shoulders above everyone else. <clears throat> then Samuel said to the people, this is the man the Lord has chosen as your king. No one in all of Israel is like him. And all the people shouted, long live the king. They'd gotten what they wanted, right? They'd rejected God as king, and God had chosen for them the man they exactly needed or thought they needed as their new king. He was head and shoulders above everyone else. He was a handsome man. He came from a well-to-do family. He was chosen by God, hand-picked by the God of the universe. And we know that early in his reign, he was very successful. <clears throat> in 1 Samuel 14, it says uh, in verses 47 and 48, wherever he turned, he was victorious. He performed great deeds. He was a great man, a great leader. God had chosen him. He had risen to prominence. God helped him to rise to prominence. But we know, as we read the story, I, I challenge you guys to go back and read the first Samuel and read through this story. There's, um, it's a pretty amazing book. It starts off with, like I said, Israel rejecting God and wanting a king, and, and Samuel comes in, and, and he picks the king. And then you see this first king just take a nosedive, Right? Things don't go well, and then another king is chosen, a king we probably are far more familiar with, a king named David. And so it's a really interesting story of the rise of prominence of Saul and, and his uh, fall, and then the rise of David. And so when you get a chance, read it later this week, and, uh, and just get a little deeper into what I'm talking about. But we know that Saul has risen to prominence. God has chosen him. He's placed him in a position of authority. He's victorious. Everywhere he goes, everything he does is victorious and considered great deeds. And yet, within a few verses of this, we see the things take a turn for the worse. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why would this man chosen by God, this great man, this great king, a big, giant, strong, healthy, good-looking, wealthy man, why would things be going downhill for him? And I believe it's because Saul refused to embrace change. Not only did he stubbornly avoid change, but he dug his heels in. 
Remember last week, Kurt talked about that, right? Digging your heels in. Defiance is, is, uh, is, uh, is rejecting something. It's, stubbornly t- it's, it's being so stubborn that you, you dig your heels in it and reject those things that you don't like. And that was Saul. It was a change that God had put into motion, and yet here was Saul rejecting that change. Because I believe God, or Saul stopped trusting God. Stopped trusting God. He became selfish. He became egotistical. He became narcissistic. I saw um, somebody use the word narcissus. You guys know what eisegesis and exegesis is? It's a term related to how you interpret the Bible, right? So you're either reading into the Bible what you want, eisegesis, or taking out of the Bible what it says, exegesis, or you're using narcissus, where you become the center of the stories of the Bible, that the Bible really ultimately revolves around you, and that was the life of Saul. He was focused on himself. He was focused on his own success instead of focusing on succession. You guys know what succession is? Succession means somebody succeeding in the task that you're in after you. And so Paul, Saul no longer cared about the nation of Israel. Saul no longer cared about those who would come after him. He was only worried about himself. He was taking a nosedive, and, and he was going to get deeper and deeper in this hole. In 1 Samuel 15, 12, it says, Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument, a monument to himself. Imagine that, hand-picked by God, hand-chosen by God, and here he is setting up a monument to himself. He'd raised to a place of prominence with the hand of God, and now he was falling to a place of irrelevance. 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 8, when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang, they danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said? They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. If you guys know the story, just a few verses before this, God had called Samuel, called Samuel to tell him he was rejecting Saul as their king and that Samuel was to anoint David as the future king of Israel. He'd already been picked. God had already moved forward. And here was Saul sedating. Next, they're going to try and make David king. But David was already made king by God. And here's Saul rejecting God's commands. We have to ask ourselves, why? Why would a man of God fall from prominence to irrelevance? A man who would be considered obsolete, unusable by God. It says that God was sorry. He was sorry he made Saul king. Those are powerful words. God was sorry that he chose Saul and made him king. Saul was unable to be used by God anymore. He was irrelevant to the mission of God. Pride, jealousy, stubbornness, all these things had blinded him to the point that he was even trying to kill the man that God had chosen, this future king of Israel, David. He was not only unwilling to embrace change, but he fought against it. He dug his heels in. He wasn't only 
unwilling to embrace change. He was unwilling to invest in the next generation. David was the next generation. David was the future of Israel. And in rejecting David, Saul ultimately was rejecting God. The funny thing is David was exactly the opposite of Saul, right? We read Saul was head and shoulders above everyone. He was tall. He was strong. He was handsome. He came from a well-to-do family. He was everything that that society thought they needed in a king. And here was little David. He was poor. He was small. It says he was ruddy. Now, I don't know if you looked up the word ruddy, but it means like red. But, but for, for many years, it was a derogatory term. It wasn't a nice thing. It wasn't that they were saying, oh, look, here's this cute little red-headed kid. I don't know if he was red-headed or if he had red skin. I don't know what it was, but he was considered ruddy, which was not a nice, handsome-looking person. He was poor. He was considered a nobody. They considered him only good for watching sheep which was one of the lowliest positions you could have in Israel. David also didn't do things the way Saul did. In fact, I'd be willing to say that that David was the millennial of Saul's day. David brought a rock to a sword fight. David hid in caves. David cut off pieces of his enemy's clothes and then taunted it in front of them, saying, Ha ha, I could have killed you, but instead I stole a piece of your clothing. And David didn't do things right all the time. We know David made some mistakes. David made huge mistakes. Some of the greatest mistakes in the Bible were made by David. But yet David was the future of Israel because God had chosen him to be the future of Israel. It was from the line of David that our king would come, right? Our king, our savior, Jesus Christ, descended from the line of David. In the book of Matthew, Christ is referred to as the son of David, right? The son of David. He was the future of Israel, and Saul could have embraced it. He could have embraced the future of Israel, and he could have invested in the future of Israel. But instead, he was defiant. 1 Samuel 31, verses 4 through 6, says that Saul groaned to his armor bearer. Now, we're, we're nearing the end of, of the story of Saul, and you'll see why in a moment. And, and it's just sad to think that this is where he had descended to, a man of prominence. Saul groaned to his armor bearer, take your sword and kill me before these pagan Philistines come to run me through and taunt and torture me. But his armor bearer was afraid and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword, and he fell on it. When his armor-bearer realized that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword and died beside the king. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his troops died that day. The man who, where everywhere, every, anywhere he turned, he was successful. The man who did great deeds. He, his family, his armor-bearer, his entire military force, gone in one day. He went from a place of prominence to a place of irrelevance because he was unwilling to embrace change and invest in the next generation, in the future of Israel. So how many of you like change? Looking for show of hands. There we go. Somebody does. How about embrace change? How about look forward to change? Yeah, we don't, right? None of us like that. Change is difficult. Change usually takes us out of our comfort zone, right? place where we like to sit. I read a 
a piece from Kerry Newhoff, and he was saying that so many of us, if we're unchecked, we, we settle into the, the era, the, the time that we considered the most comfortable for ourselves, the things we like the most, and we stick there. That's where we want to stay. <clears throat> it's true of all of us. Change takes us out of our comfort zone. But the thing is, the Bible teaches that change is good, right? I don't see many heads shaking. Change really is good. How many of you can say that you're a different person today than you were yesterday or last month or last year or 10 years ago? Yeah, every hand's up. I can see all the hands up right now. How many of you believe that the Holy Spirit is working within you to change you more and more day by day into the image of Christ? Is not our greatest hope that God can and will change us? Because if we're not changed, we're lost, right? God can and will change us. Change is good. The mission of God never changes. It's never changed from the beginning. The mission of God never changes, but our methods to accomplish His mission are ever-changing. We can't do things the way we always have because it isn't working. All you have to do is look at the numbers of people leaving the church. Look at the numbers of young people that are not only leaving church, but they're turning their backs on God. They're rejecting the faith that their parents tried to teach them. Look at the number of churches that are closing every year. I believe last year it was something like 7,500 churches closing. And that's not even as tragic as the number of people that are walking away from the church. If the way we've always done things works, then why is the church not flourishing? And the next question is, are we ready to do something different? Are we ready to try something different? Are we ready for change? I have a quote from Alvin Toffler, if they can throw it up on the screen. The illiterate of the future are not those who cannot read or write, but those who cannot learn, cannot unlearn, and then relearn. And when I first read this, it, it took me a moment to just kind of comprehend what he was saying here, and it brought me back to Romans. Romans 12 says that don't be, do not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed, how? By the renewing of our minds, the ability to learn, to unlearn, and to relearn every single day. Transformation. Transformation means change, and change is good. So we have to ask ourselves, do we want to be successful? Successful at reaching the next generation? Or do we just roll our eyes when somebody that's younger than us, somebody from a younger generation talks about what they don't like, what they want changed? Are we rolling our eyes or are we embracing their ideas? Are we embracing the ideas because the future of the church depends on our younger generations? We want them to be successful for decades to come. There is a day coming when you and I, every person in this room is no longer going to be here. We will not be the church. We will not be the leaders of the church. We have to ask ourselves, can we trust God? Can we trust God to continue growing His church? Can we trust God to accomplish His mission, that mission that never changes? Can we trust Him to do that through somebody else, through future generations, through people who do things differently even if they're doing it wrong. I told you I was going to go back to the blockbuster story. This is a really interesting story. 
<clears throat> Blockbuster was, uh, was a huge company for a while, right? And I think it was 2004 was, was their, their peak. They had like 90,000 uh, employees and not over 9,000 stores worldwide, all over the world. They were worth millions, probably billions. And there was a point where uh, the Netflix was just getting going. You guys all know Netflix, right? Yeah, Netflix was just getting going. And so the CEO of Netflix sat down with the CEO of Blockbuster and explained to him what they were doing and, and, and was offering this company, Netflix, to the blo uh, Blockbuster CEO for them to purchase. So they could purchase Netflix and, and, and merge them into one company. And they laughed at him. They laughed at the owner of Netflix. Now, I realize that Netflix was just getting started. So, you know, at that point, it probably seemed all right. But, but he laughed at them. They rejected this offer for Blockbuster to buy Netflix. Like I said, at their peak, they were 90,000 employees, 9,000 stores. But the thing that, that, that was the issue was they made their money off of late fees. Right? You guys remember that, right? Forgot to take the movie back. You get charged some exorbitant amount of money. Or rewind fees, right, if you didn't rewind your movies. And that's how they made their money. They couldn't see past making money any other way. In fact, a few years later, when they realized that they had missed the bandwagon, they decided they, they, maybe they should start trying to change and, and, and move into this market of, of streaming movies, of DVDs being mailed in the mail. Remember that? That's Netflix how Netflix started. You got a, a DVD in the mail. And so they decided, okay, we, we got to do something. We need to do this. Well, they realized it was going to cost them $400 million to do what they could have done for $50 million. It's going to cost them $200 million just to set it up, and they were going to lose $200 million in late fees and rewind fees, which is how they ultimately made their money. <clears throat> they were unwilling to embrace change. They were unwilling to invest in the future. They believed they were doing it right. They had cornered the market. There was no way they were stepping backwards to take on a little company that wasn't making any money. They were doing it right, and it was working. So I have to ask, where are they at today? I know you guys know this. It's been in the news. It just happened this week. Blockbuster, the last one in the entire world. It's right here in Oregon. It's in Bend. Now, I don't believe that the corporation itself is, is gone. They, they filed bankruptcy and all that. But there's this Blockbuster video up in Bend. And they're actually changing again. I'm, I'm assuming they're not making a lot of money renting DVDs. So they are making like a, a bed and breakfast type place where you can come in and have this nostalgic stay and you have full access to their movies and, you know, the big screen with the DVD player and all that. And so they're changing again, trying to figure out how to make money. The last blockbuster in the entire world. And where's Netflix today? It's huge. It's huge. They've expanded. They've done, they went from selling or mailing DVDs to a full streaming service. They're making a ton of money. And Blockbuster could have been a part of that. They could have been a part of that. It wouldn't have cost them that much of an investment for the amount of money they would have made. But they were stubbornly, defiantly unwilling to embrace change. They couldn't see past what they were doing. They couldn't see past the correct way to rent movies, the correct way to make money off of movies. Therefore, they wouldn't embrace and invest in the future of movies. The thing is, guys... In the church, we do the same thing. We like the things we like. We're comfortable with certain things. We don't like change. But just like Blockbuster, if we don't do something, we're going to continue to lose our future generations. 
And they are the future of our church. They are. When we believe that we serve a God of impossibilities, when we believe that God, the God of the universe, can do the impossible when we trust Him with the impossible, we are able to embrace change. If not, we are going to be like Saul, a man who rose to prominence, a man handpicked, chosen by God, placed in a position of prominence by our loving God, our loving Father, and yet selfishness, conceit, pride, they got in the way of him continuing to be the, God, the man God would use. And he fell from prominence to irrelevance. If you ask a lot of young people today, they're going to tell you that the church is irrelevant to them. It doesn't meet the needs they have. It doesn't understand the needs. It doesn't understand where they're at today. We do not want to be irrelevant. We have the most relevant story, the greatest news in the history of the world to share. We have the power of God. We have the ability to live fulfilled lives. To find purpose in this world. And if something doesn't change, it's going to get lost. We're going to have even more people turning away from God, turning away from church, trying to find their purpose in the world. We can be a part of the kingdom that's coming, a part of the church, a part of the future, or we can be like Saul, and we can die irrelevant, unusable by God. Do we want to invest in the future? Everything we've received from God, everything, is meant for the purpose of others. It's for the good of others. We're meant to give away. If you look at the life of Christ, everything he received was from the Father. He said that, right? And yet he kept nothing for himself. Nothing. Everything he had was given for others. Right down to his life. His very life. He gave up his own life for you, for me, for each one of us, for every single person in this world today who's willing to accept that gift and trust in our loving God. He gave everything for others. He kept nothing for himself. He invested in the future. Jesus took 12 men, right? You know the story. He's, he's got hundreds of followers, thousands of followers. And, and you look at his life, and, 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 and these groups of people keep getting narrowed down. And, and the, the smaller the group gets, the more intimate, the more personal he is with them. And he took these 12 men, and he invested in them. He invested his entire life, all 33 years of his life were meant to be invested in these 12 men. And what did these 12 men do? They changed the world. 12 nobodies. Fishermen. They were nobody, and yet God used them. Christ invested in them, and they became world changers. So my question for you today is, is Redwood Christian Church ready to invest? Are we ready to embrace some change? Are we ready to do something that can change the world for generations to come? 
Are we willing to invest and make sure that the future generations, the millennials, those behind the millennials can be successful for decades to come when we're no longer here? And I hope your answer is yes. And not just a yes with a nod of your head, but that your heart embraces change. That the actions of your life embrace change. That we are embracing change by investing in the future generations. I got done quick. I talked too fast. <laughs> Let me pray for us, and then Kurt's going to come up and uh, do communion and talk about how our vote's going to go today. Father, we thank you so much that, that change is good. Father, that you desire each one of us to be changing every day, that as we embrace change and, and allow you to to work around us and in us and through us and, and with future generations, Father, we can be a part of continuing to change this world, continuing to make your name great and uh, bring all people into a, a right relationship with you. Help us to not get stuck in those things we like, the things we enjoy, but to be able to step out of our comfort zone, step into uncomfortableness, step into things that uh, we normally would run from and embrace them and, and allow you to work through them. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.